The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Um, I was telling the team this morning, it feels a little bit, I don't know if you'll be able to relate to this, but that feeling you got growing up the first day of school, where you're, you have this mix of, I'm giddy, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of excited, I have this anticipation, right? I feel that way this morning as we come into Titus. I can't help it, but I am so excited. We are at the starting line of this book. Um, and over the next couple months, we are going to be walking ever so slowly um, through, this, through this book. So Titus is a New Testament epistle, meaning it's a letter. Titus was written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it in some time in the 60s. I mean, the 60s, like literal 60s, 60s AD, all right, is, is when this letter was written. We're gonna, he wrote it to a man named Titus. We're going we're gonna to look at more about him here in a bit. But before we get into this letter, I'd like to give us a little bit of context and, and some foundation so we can kind of have a better idea of what we're stepping into. Um, in order to do that, I want to introduce you to a place called Crete, the island of Crete. Um, it's the southern island. It's a southern island of Greece in the Mediterranean. If you Google it, it is beautiful. I, I got distracted as I was preparing just by looking at future vacation possibilities here. Um, but it is absolutely beautiful. But in the ancient world, it was not a vacation destination. Um, this was a major port island, port city, many cities. Um, it was the largest Greek island, and because of its location, it was thriving. It was a thriving port, which follow me here, for the sake of the gospel, made Crete a very important place. Because if you can reach Crete with the gospel, you can impact the known ancient world. But Crete was a very difficult, very difficult place. Um, they had a reputation. They were called Cretans, which I always thought that was like a negative word. I think it is, and I think it came from here. Um, but they had this reputation for their sin, one of their, their most famous philosophers and poets, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but Epimenditus, that's right, Epimenditus, if it's wrong, you don't know, but Epimenditus, right, he, um, he wrote about his own people, he says this, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. He wrote that about his own neighborhood, like that's kind of fun. Um, but this was their reputation, and Paul is actually going to quote this man later on in the letter. Um, but this was what their reputation was in the known world. And uh, in addition, they were a pagan people. How many have heard about the, the Greek mythology of Zeus? All right? Zeus was believed, they believed, was born on this island. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a bit, but this was the central place of it all. Zeus was like the, the big dog in the Greek mythology, and this was his hometown. 
the island of Crete. Um, But even more than that, and here's what I want us to see, is this culture was against the gospel. But even though they were known for their sin, even though they were known as the birthplace of Zeus, in spite of all that, gospel work was happening. Churches were being planted and gospel work was taking place. Now, it was being opposed and many times being opposed from within. We'll see that here in a bit. But churches were being planted on this island. Gospel work was going forth. It, and because Crete was such a strategic and pivotal city, Paul sends his best. And by that, I mean Titus. To, to go and help and establish, encourage, shake up, and serve the churches here. And in this letter, we have Paul's words to Titus, his instructions to Titus, but here is the purpose of the letter. You ready? Here is the reason this was written. It was to instruct the church on how it could live and engage in this culture. How could it be healthy and thrive? How can it push against the influences of the culture around it that were creeping in? And how could it represent Christ well? The big questions that come out of Titus is what should the church look like when it finds itself in a very lost community? What relationship should Christians have with the lost world around us? especially in the lost world around us who are hostile toward the gospel we stand on. What relationship should you and I have with the lost world around us? These are important questions, big questions, and that's what Titus deals with as we look at this letter. Uh, We are going to look at the very first four verses, the greeting um, this morning. Uh, However, before we turn there, um, if you have your place in Titus, that's awesome. Keep a finger there. But can you turn backwards, turn to the left several books to the Gospel of John with me? John chapter 17. Uh, Sorry to make you jump, but hopefully you'll understand why. Um, I want to read for you a portion of Scripture. Uh, I want to read for you actually a prayer. Um. It's not just any prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed for you. It's called the high priestly prayer. This prayer absolutely blows me away because this is, in John 17, this is my Savior, my Lord, my King, the one I worship here praying for me and you, praying for us. This is Jesus praying for us. Jesus is praying for us as his church, as his disciples, And as a part of this prayer, I want you to read with me in in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, we have a churchy phrase that tries to summarize what we just read. Um, 
we've developed this, this phrase. It, we say, in the world, but not of it. Have you heard that? Heard that phrase? In the world, but not of it. Um, it's that through Christ, we are not of this world. Our values, our hope, our perspective, our plans, our future, they're not shared with the world. They're not of the world. We are unlike this world. And Jesus says, hey, that world has hated me and it will hate them. It will hate the gospel that they stand on. Now, I believe this is really important for us to wrestle with because I think we can relate really well. And what I mean by this is as we look around, I believe there was a time church when um, Christianity was more at home in our culture. I believe, it, it, not to say that we were ever a strictly Christian nation, we're not Israel 2.0, not, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying though is that there was a time when we were more at home in our own culture. Um, there was a, there's been this progression. We have gone from a time when our culture around us said yes to our God and yes to our values. When following Jesus gave you street cred, gave you social equity, when it was a good thing for you. Um, but then it moved, and it moved from saying yes to your God and yes to your morals. It moved a little bit, and it said no to your God, but yes to your morals. Like, we, we, we like what you stand for. We like that you're good people in the community, but just keep the whole God thing to yourself and we're good. Like, in other words, you know, we'll tolerate your view of God, just don't push it. Um, we'll tolerate the view of God, but we like your values, those good old Judeo-Christian values, right? But then we saw an even bigger shift because we're no longer in this world. We're definitely not in this world. We're definitely not in this world. We have seen a bigger shift where it's now not yes to your God and yes to your values. It's also not no to your God, yes to your values. We are living in a world that says no to your God and your values are offensive. We have seen a shift. In our culture, being a Christian is no longer positive street cred. It's no longer positive social equity. It actually works against you. It's a negative mark on your credit score. This has been a big shift. And the more faithfully we cling to Scripture, the more we see this to be true. We find this more to be true. And don't you dare be discouraged by what I'm telling you either. Don't be discouraged by this. Um, Jesus told us that this was going to happen. Jesus prayed for us while this was happening. We should not be surprised. We should not be discouraged because Jesus says, I've given them the word and the world has hated them because they weren't of the world just as I am not of the world. I'm not trying to take them out. I'm praying that they are kept from the evil one in it. So here's why I bring this up. I believe this is the foundational element for us as we look at the book of Titus. Um, what is our relationship to the world around us, our culture around us, our community around us? I, as we seek to answer this question, I want to put before you four options. And um, quickly, I'd just like to build on this a little bit. The first one is what I'm going to call the cultural approach. What this is, is that um, we try our best to kind of fully assimilate into the world around us. 
We, we don't want to be weird. We want to look like them, smell like them, act like them. We want to be in with them. This is a cultural approach. Now, this might work if we're trying to fit into a Christian culture. But as we just said, it's not the case. So in the cultural approach, we put away all of the Christian distinctives that might rub our culture the wrong way in order that we might assimilate in with the community. And in this approach, there is no difference between us and our community. Now, I'm going to give you four approaches. Each of these approaches can be taken as individuals, as families, as churches, But in this approach, the cultural approach, it's when our lives, our homes, our decisions, our churches look just like the world around us where they make perfect sense to the world around us. We have that saying, in the world but not of it. In this approach, it's no longer that saying. It's we are in the world and of it. This is the cultural approach. Church, there is a better way. There is a better approach. There is a better way to live than this. Let's move to the second approach. I'm going to call it the subcultural approach. In this approach, we kind of like what the world has going on. We want to take the world's stuff, but we want to staple Jesus to it. We want to Jesus-fy everything. We, We... This is when we lead our lives and our homes just like the lost neighbors around us, only we go to church some, and we use some churchy words, and we don't curse as much. Subcultural approach, really, it longs for what the world has and what the world is doing, and what the world values, and what the world says is important. It longs for those things. Only we will staple some Jesus on it and call it our own. We appropriate the world's stuff. This approach, honestly, is really easy to identify in churches. Um, To pick on churches, I'll pick on you and your homes later, but churches, when you see a whole budget, a whole, all of our energy The whole church dedicated itself to looking just like the world, playing the world's music, um, appealing to all of the world's values, and then before they leave, bam, gospel presentation as they walk out. That is a subcultural approach. And in this approach, that saying again, in the world but not of it, we modify it a little bit, and it's in the world and of it, dot, 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 with Jesus, the subcultural approach. How are we going to approach our world? Cultural approach, subcultural approach. Now let's think of the third one, which we're going to swing this pendulum way to the other side, and we're going to call this the anti-cultural response. In this response, we so adamantly hate the world and all that it stands for, all of the heathens that are all around us, that in this approach, approach we seek to withdraw completely. We seek to say, you know what? Peace, I'm out. I'm out. This is the tendency to withdraw, the tendency to run, the tendency to try to find a big piece of land, put up huge fences, make a compound, grow our own food, and just don't interact with the heathens. Don't listen to their music, don't watch their movies, don't let that culture touch you, it's contagious, and so in this approach, we tend to wholly huddle ourselves together 
and um, board ourselves up so that we're not infected. So in this approach, and I bet you've seen it before, this is the tendency to withdraw, the tendency to run. Honestly, you might see this tendency in yourself, and, and if you do, um, I don't want to offend you by what I'm about to say, but this approach is not helpful at all to the cause of Christ. Um, we're called to reach the world, but in this approach, we're hiding from it. Because in this approach, it's not in the world and not of it. In this approach, it's we're not in the world and we're not of it. This is approach number three. It's hard to reach the world while we're hiding from it. Talk a little more about that in a little bit. But uh, there's got to be a better way than adopting the culture with a cultural approach, than adopting the culture with Jesus stapled in a subcultural approach, and there's got to be a better way than outright running the other direction and rejecting everything about the culture with this anti-cultural response. And I believe there is a better way that Scripture gives us. And it's what Jesus prayed for you. And it's what Paul is going to put out in front of you in the book of Titus. The fourth approach I'm going to call the countercultural approach. In this approach, we don't adopt the world's ways. We follow Christ in the world. For the world to see. For the world to see Jesus in us and through us. We don't try to appropriate all the world's stuff. Instead, we walk boldly down a different path with different values and with a different perspective because of Christ in us. We are new creatures. Our question is not, well, how can we look like the world so that we don't look weird to the world? How do we look like the world so they don't think we're crazy and foolish? No, the church is, how can we live our life for Christ in our world and engage them with the gospel? The world doesn't need to see itself. They see that everywhere else. They don't need to see itself when they look at us. They need to see Jesus. And by the way, apart from Christ, Scripture is very clear that um, they're probably going to believe you to be foolish and crazy. Um, The cross, as Scripture says, is is folly to those who are perishing. We know this. But even if they think we're crazy, they are going to see your life. They are going to see the way you live the way you impact and love your community, and they will be drawn to Christ. And also, if our tendency is to run, it's hard for them to see you at all. (laughs) But that we are in the world where they see us and they see Jesus in us and through us. In the world, but not of it. And I know it might be heresy to do this, but I want to modify this phrase just a little bit. It's not scriptural, so it's not heresy. Um, In the world, but not of it. I'd like to propose that we change this to not of the world, but sent into it. To, To mirror what Jesus has prayed for you and what he has prayed for me. So the question is not how much can we look like the world and still be a Christian. The question is not how can we look like the world and not 
look weird to the world. No, the question is how can we engage the world around us with the gospel? When our churches look like the world, when our homes look just like the homes around us who do not know Jesus, when we make perfect sense to the lost world around us, we have missed it. We are no longer showing what a life in Jesus looks like, and it's no wonder why it's not appealing. With the cultural approach and the subcultural approach, the world doesn't want to hear about the gospel. They're just going to continue on in their ways because they look just like you. You can staple Jesus to it if you want, but life goes on. And with the anti-cultural approach, the world definitely doesn't want to hear from you because they know you've been hiding from them. They know your hatred of them. They don't want to hear the gospel coming from you when you have looked at them like they've had a plague. But when the gospel is countercultural, the gospel then calls our churches to be countercultural for the sake of winning those in the community with the gospel. This is what Jesus prayed for you and for me that I've given them your word. The world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. Jesus prays that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Church, what does that look like? Welcome to Titus. This is the question that Titus helps us to answer. What does it look like for individuals, for families, for the church to be in this world but not of it? What does it look like for families, individuals, churches to not be of this world but sent into it? With that said, I'd like for us to look at the greeting together. Um, I'd like for us to look at the first four verses and uh, in these verses, we're going to see four questions that are answered. The, the first is who wrote it, second is why did he write it, and the third is to whom did he write it. So uh, let's look at the first question here is, is in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, of Jesus Christ. So Paul identifies himself in two ways, a servant of God, apostle of Christ. Servant, that's the Greek word doulos, that means bondservant. So when Paul says this, he means, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I exist for his purposes. I exist for him. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a servant of God. So Paul says, I'm a servant of God. And more than that, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ, meaning I am one of the men who Jesus selected to be sent out for the purpose of spreading the gospel, for the purpose of getting the good news of Jesus across the, the known world. Now, notice the order of these two descriptions. He's a servant, and then he's an apostle. Paul says, here is who I am. I am a servant of God, meaning I belong to God, and I am apostle, meaning I am one who has been called out, identified, set apart from Jesus himself for this purpose. You get a sense as you read this intro, and by the way, as you read through all of Paul's intros, that he was quite sure about who he was in Christ that he was sure about his identity in Christ. He was sure about who he was in God's, in God's eyes and what he was called to do and be. His identity was sure 
in God through Christ. And so he speaks out of this place of care and authenticity and authority because of that. Now, let's move to the who. The who we see here. He says, um, Paul, a servant of God um, and an apostle of Christ, that is the who. It's Paul. So now let's look at the why. Why did Paul write this? We see here it says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is to say that it's for the sake of the church, for the sake of the saints who were there in Crete, for the sake of those who belong to Jesus. Paul says, it is for your sake that I write that, it write this, and not just that, but for your sake and for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul says, I write this to the church that they would know the truth, but more than that, that their knowledge of the truth would then lead them to godliness. That the knowledge of the truth would lead them to godly lives in the midst of that culture that we've already talked about. Paul continues, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies. That's awesome. Promise before the ages begin. Those three words should cause us a lot of joy. Who never lies. Meaning everything and all that he has promised is true and will happen. He says, I write to you, church, that you're going to know the truth and that you're going to live the truth, that you're going to stand on this shakable hope because your God does not lie. And I don't want you to miss this either because although your God doesn't lie, Paul says, their God does. Let me unpack that a little bit. The God of the Cretans, Cretans the God of the Cretan culture, we talked about it being the birthplace of Zeus, right? Well, the more you know about Greek mythology, the more you know that Zeus was known for his cunning, the more you know he was a crafty, crafty um, God, the more you know that he did trick, he did seduce, he did lie in their mythology. And Paul says, you know everything that your culture has told you about God? You know everything that your culture is telling you about God? Well, your God's not like that. Sometimes, church, I think we just need to stop and hear that. We as a church, living in this culture, indoctrinated by what this culture tells us about our God and about what they worship, we are indoctrinated with it. Sometimes I think it's important to just stop and hear Paul's words. Your God, the true God, is not like the gods that your culture worships. Your God, the true God, is not like the false gods in your community. Paul says, your God, the true God, does not lie. He says, at the proper time, manifested in his word through preaching. It is in his word through preaching that this is the sovereign plan of God. That this is his plan for the proclamation of the gospel. This was his plan. It's in his word. That means it's not our words. It's not it's his. It is his scripture, his truth. We stand on it. We cling to it. We trust it. And Paul says we preach it. Here at Stone Oak uh, Bible, we've said this a lot, um, but we really are proud to be a bit of a one-trick pony. And uh, what I mean that is we've said from the beginning, we're a gospel-centered and intentionally simple church. 
And the reason for this is because we don't have a lot of like other tricks up our sleeves as a church. Um, we are real low on gimmicks. Um, we we um, we don't have kind of a secret thing going on. Our one trick pony is the proclamation of the gospel from Scripture. That's it, and we rally around this. And the reason we do this is because we believe that this is God's plan. This is the plan that God himself has set into place for us to know him, follow him, and proclaim him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I've quoted that this morning already. But the second part of that says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We believe that. Paul says it has manifested through his word and through the preaching of his word. His word, in his word, the gospel. And Paul says in verse 3, I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In this greeting, you see Paul's heart for the entire letter. He was writing to the church who found themselves in the middle of a wicked culture. He was writing to them that they would know him, live out the truth, trust in the truth that's found in the word of God. And we're going to see these things all throughout the letter to Titus. And so let me unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about Titus, the to whom was it written part. This letter was written to a man named Titus. And um, listen to how Paul addresses him. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in common faith. This phrase reveals something incredibly important. Paul was Titus's spiritual father. Meaning, Paul had led him to faith, Paul had instructed him in the faith, Paul had shared the gospel with him, Paul was discipling him, Paul was discipling Titus, and Titus, as Paul's disciple, was now being sent out for gospel work here in Crete. And a few things here that I want us to see. Number one, you, like Paul, are called to share the gospel. Number two, you, like Paul, are called to be a disciple maker. This is what you are called to be and to do, to make disciples. And number three, like Paul, you are called to train and equip those who you disciple to send them out for gospel work. In other words, what we see here in this intro should be normative, not weird. This kind of relationship, this kind of discipleship should be the normal. You and I should have a Titus in our life. Do you have a Titus? In his book, um, we've used this book here at Stone Oak, uh, called Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putman. Um, Jim Putman um, identifies several stages of maturity. I want us to walk through this just in light of this greeting. Uh, he starts with death. Death. This is someone who has not responded in faith to the gospel, a person not yet born again, and this person needs to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ in faith. Death. And when they do, 
that they would grow now into what he calls the infant stage, an infant. Now, um, infants are characterized by ignorance and dependence, uh, meaning they just don't know what they don't know yet. They're, they're new to the faith. It's just the joy of that season and that stage. They, they don't really know yet what they need, and they don't really know yet what the Bible says about what they need, but they know that Jesus is good, and they've responded to it. And because of this, with infants, just in all honesty, we often see a lot of world mixed in in their view of the gospel. I guess a better way to phrase it is that it's often the world's view, but now Jesus is kind of breaking through it. This is the infant stage, and praise God for infants. If you are in this room and you are new to the faith, praise God for infants. We love, I love that you are here But as that infant grows, it becomes a child. Children are typically selfish, um, and they are interdependent. If you have kids, you know this to be true. Um, With spiritual children, there's often an excitement about new teachings, and there's an excitement about the new community that you have, these deep relationships. But there's often, along with that, just a general lack of wisdom for how to use what they're learning. Often this stage has a lot of spiritual highs and spiritual lows. And there's also two tendencies that often characterize spiritual children. Number one is there's a tendency to want to mimic the behavior of more mature Christians um, so that you can look like you know what you're doing. And I guess a better way to put this is there's often quite a bit more knowledge about what Christians say about the Word of God than what the Word of God says. This is a marker of a child in the faith. And the second tendency is that just like physical children, children almost without exception think they're older than they are. Don't you dare tell a four-year-old who thinks he's, he's six and should be playing with the big boys that he's four years old, right? This is a tendency of a child in the faith. And by God's grace, as that child grows, it becomes a young adult. Um, Young adults are characterized by action. Like, let me get this work done. They're doers. There's a strong desire to serve. Um, They take ownership. They're characterized by their independence, right? They, they, they want to serve, but oftentimes they don't think about training others to serve. It's see a need, give me a hammer. I'm going to get it done. They, they can find themselves thinking, why on earth isn't everyone like me? Why can't we all just see a need, fill a need, and then this church would be awesome, It's a young adult philosophy. Praise God for all of these stages. But they're doers. And again, by the grace of God, as young adults grow and mature, they become parents. Parents 
are characterized by being intentional and strategic and dependable. They, they think in terms of the ability for the team to accomplish as opposed to just the individual. There's a coaching mindset. There's a desire to see people around you grow. People around you, people that you serve with, that you do life with to grow and to mature. There's a desire to see them, to want to see them equipped and to grow in their faith. It becomes what you devote yourself to so that they become fellow workers alongside of you. Now, with that said, as we look at at Paul's letter to Titus, we see where Paul was. Paul was a spiritual parent. And as we think about it in terms of that, we feel the weight of his words when he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. This is a parental statement. And this is huge to understand because this is the heart of Paul's letter to Titus. And by the way, with what we just saw, um, where are you? Where are you in this process? I know it's a really hard question to answer, but I encourage you to do some heart work, invite the Lord to reveal this. Where are you in this process, in your life? Maybe ask someone you love and trust to speak into that if you need some help. I recommend doing that anyway. But where are you on this pathway to maturity, knowing there is not a bad, I hope we have people in all maturity stages here at our church. I hope we have all of these stages represented here as we grow together in Christ. But hear me, if we're going to live for Christ in our culture, if we are going to live for Jesus here in our culture, in a culture that does not value what we value, in a culture that does not like what you stand for, if we're going to live in our culture and represent Jesus well, it's going to be because we are growing in this pathway, growing in Christ. It means that more who are dead are responding in faith and new life. It means that more infants are growing into spiritual children. It means that more spiritual children are growing into young adults. It means that more young adults, by the grace of God, are becoming parents. This is how we change and engage our culture. This is not through tricks. It is not through gimmicks. It is through knowing the truth, living the truth, trusting the truth, and growing in the truth as we move to the right on this process. The best question for us to ask and to answer is, are you, am I, growing in my faith and walk in Jesus? Discipleship is about following Jesus, not standing still. Are you following Jesus? And also, I want to be upfront. Um, my prayer here is for more spiritual parents. That we would see more who will disciple, more who will be reproducing disciples. 
more who will be a disciple-making disciple. This is how we engage our culture. This is what it is going to take. For us to push against the tendency to join the world in a cultural or subcultural approach. For us to push against the tendency to run and withdraw and take the anti-cultural approach. Discipleship is going is what it's going to take for us to have the countercultural movement that Christ has called us to be as his church. To be in the world but not of it, to be of the world, in the world but but sent into it. Um, we have an exciting journey ahead of us in this book. This is only the greeting, this is only the intro, um, but we have so much ahead for us. Um, I cannot wait. I, I want us to end our time together this morning, though, in prayer that God would apply His Word, that our God would change us, that He would grow us, that He would send us, and that we could change our community, that He could change our community through us. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for Titus. I want to thank you that it is so applicable for us. It is exactly what we need. Lord, we look around at a culture who they do not value what we value. They do not believe in what we believe. They are questioning the very things that we stand on. And in this world, in this culture, when we don't quite look like those around us, it is so easy for us to become discouraged and disheartened. But Lord, through your word, you have promised us that we were going to face seasons like this. You have promised us that our churches are not going to be at home in our culture. You have promised us that we are going to have to engage a culture that does not look like us or share with us our faith in your son. We know, we know that this is coming and we are here, Lord. And so as we find ourselves in this place, it is like honey on our lips to step into your scripture that now gives us how we can do this and do this well for your glory. So Lord, I pray that over the next several months as we walk through this book, I pray that over the next several moments as we digest what we just walked through, I pray that you will change us, that you will grow us. And as Paul said to Titus, that our knowledge of the truth will then lead to godliness in our lives. And that that godliness in our lives will be lived out into the world for them to see Christ through us. Lord, would you help us on this journey? We need you. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.